Can you hear me? Papa, can you Can't hear me? <laughs> Fiddler on the roof? Yeah. Anyway, you're Rob. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining. On today's episode, we'll talk about fill this in. Uh, sorry, did we, did, didn't we update this? I actually forgot to fill it in. <laughs> On today's episode, we'll talk about fill this in here. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Let me start that again. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining. Two guys shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll talk about business and human rights, the Suez Canal. And later on, we'll be talking with Dorothee Bowman-Poli of the Geneva Institute on Business and Human Rights about... Business and Human Rights. Business and Human Rights. That's the third time I just said that. It's in the title. And as always, we'll have the usual news roundup, information on your intrepid Geneva border guards, and even the reemergence of the UN word of the day. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, folks, welcome to episode 15 of Tradesplaining. Jeez, that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. We're, we've come a long way from the days when we didn't know how to use a garage. What's band. the average revenue per episode so far? It's more than whatever we're making. <laughs> but we're not in it for the money, are we? We're in it for the That's fame. correct. We're, we're authentic. What we have not sold out. No, we have not sold we could, anything. We could say that. <laughs> we haven't sold, sold in. Anything. We haven't sold out. Yeah. Anyway, but I digress. <laughs> we did it again. We'll, we'll, <laughs> so early in the podcast. Got him. Got me with me. Got him. We're going to start off with the listener feedback segment, if Rob doesn't stop interrupting me. Our first Please lis- go ahead. Our first listener and guest actually commented, oh, I thought you made all this stuff up, end quote, about the Geneva News segment related to toads. Au contraire, Artie, this is all part of our research department, and I've got the clippings underneath the table here to prove it. Yeah, it, the floor is actually filled with them. There's actually, there are actually signs in Geneva yeah. which I can point to showing toad crossings. It, it looks like the Zodiac Killer lives in this room right now. <laughs> <laughs> or something, a scene out of Silence of the Lambs, just newspaper clippings with circles around. Just them. think if we could open up that part of your brain that has movie quotes. <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be an unbelievable resource to humanity. <laughs> just think what you could put in there. We could start like a, a game, like those card games, cards against humanity, <laughs> Artie against humanity. Anyway, another self-described avid listener wrote in and asked if we could do an episode on how economics and trade is taught in schools, specifically higher ed and secondary. She also asked if there was a better way to pass on the economics baton to young people. Maybe you could throw it at them. Hard pass. Anyway. On the baton. (laughs) She also kindly suggested a few uh, potential interview guests who we might be interested in speaking to. So thank you for that. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We're enjoying that. So keep those coming. And finally, another listener also wrote to us on Twitter. So moving on from that analog email, which is not really analog, but anyway, to say that she loved the jokes about Rob's age and that we should keep it up. And yes, it's a true story. Do we, so... She liked the banter between the age stuff, which I thought would kill us in the old person segment. <laughs> which she's not in. Which she's not in. Is that a segment we're trying to do well on? We're not picky. I thought that we, I thought the jokes were about your age, not my... Are they mainly about my age? There's actually a... <laughs> a song called What's My Age Again by Blink-182. Is it? Yeah. Also, I've got an idea for the podcast I want to discuss with you here. I understand influencers use something called the best friend effect, so we can use product placements. Our listeners start to feel an affinity to us. We give them a pet name such as Our Little Splainers. It's a little and, awkward. It's a little, it's a little and, unsettling. And, it's a little unsettling. Give them like a promo code for the product, say a bracelet mm. or a headphones or like a sticker of a unicorn. And then what do you think? I just think we need to refresh in the podcast and maybe get some money in the door. We should get some stickers with our faces on them. People can um, see who Talk puts about it on, unsettling. Who puts it on their car. 
<laughs> sell that on Wish. Also, here's an idea for a promo code. Uh, all caps, we're desperate 21. <laughs> 21. And you can use that basically anywhere. Put it, put that promo code in pretty much any product you buy and yeah. see if you get something. Yeah, yeah. And let us know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the news roundup, or what we like to call the stuff that went wrong this week segment. And Roberto, we're in luck. We actually picked the right time to talk about trade and human rights because there's been lots of interesting developments and a little something on the Suez Canal. Very much so. So Switzerland very recently voted very narrowly, but they did vote for a free trade agreement with Indonesia, which may have an effect on my Nutella. That's kind of why I was watching it. The They voted to accept this free trade agreement. Now, the logic is clear. Indonesia is going to be a huge market. It'll be the fourth largest economy by 2070. It has a huge potential for Swiss products. And they also see this as a way to open trade in the region. But the agreement has a new twist, even a progressive twist, which is the Swiss will reduce tariffs on palm oil if, but only if, that satisfies a sustainability standard. So in this case, it'll be probably RSPO, the Roundtable uh, on Sustainable Palm Oil. So this is a really new thing for two reasons, in my view, voting on free trade agreements, so getting people to put their money where their mouth is, voters. And the second thing is that a sustainable product will be treated differently. A, A product that respects human rights will be treated differently than a product that doesn't. It'll get a lower tariff. This is pretty novel. I don't know of any agreements that currently do that, with very, very rare exceptions. So the vote was very close because a lot of people didn't want it. They think palm oil is just deforestation. It's just human rights violations. And all the 15 years when this standard's been in place, not much has changed. Fine, you can you can have the standard, but you're still going to keep taking land away. You're still going to strand your orangutans, your tigers. You're still going to exploit people in this area. So I think it, it raises a couple things. One is are we going to start really associating trade and human rights? And the second thing is, are we going to more put these things to the voter? I know Switzerland's different, but that's kind of something you've been asking, Artie. Are we going to get people aware of trade agreements rather than trying to hide them or negotiate them in a way people don't understand? I think this is the first step of, of this type of initiative. The second, I think, is showing that these types of standards are enforceable. So in many areas, you see that there are many cases where maybe it says it's sustainable, but there's no actual mechanism in place to prove that whatever products they're using are actually sustainable. That that remains the same for, you know, sustainably farmed tuna or or fish or, or things like this. Forestry products. Forestry products. So I think that'll be the next step, but it's an interesting sort of development to see already that consumers are placing emphasis on this because businesses obviously will take note. Yeah, they'll take note. Exactly. I think so. And we and we hear a lot about how consumers are getting even more conscious of such things post-corona. So let's see. And there's also another bit on where you stand. Apparently depends on where you can get sued. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So recently a UK court decided Royal Dutch Shell, uh, the oil company, could be sued for human rights abuses in the UK courts. And the Shell argued like they always do, sure it happened. All the human rights abuses. We know the Niger Delta is filthy. It's uninhabitable. There's been plenty of uh, problems, but they always say it was a subsidiary. It's not us. We're very sorry that uh, this Nigerian-based company did that. So the UK courts blew through that and said you can be sued in a UK court. I think that makes a big difference because if you can enforce it like you're saying in a UK court, I think a company will will stand up. And we've got another case in Geneva. Uh, a guy named Benny Steinmetz, who was described as the Diamond King, had paid some intermediaries in Guinea for a mining contract there. 34 million bucks. Sounds like a lot of money to some people. The... Nobody's denying the payments were made, but he's saying it wasn't me. It was a subsidiary that did this corrupt act. And the Geneva court said that is not true. 
you did it. Actually, the company's called Benny Steinmetz Resources Group. That was a tip. That's, I mean, I don't know. It's not that obvious. <laughs> That's something like, don't put your name on the company. And they've, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. Will he serve it? Who, who knows? But he was sued in a Swiss court, and he was found guilty of this act of corruption. Again, this is something that we'll talk about with Doro in a minute, but th- this is something people get very worried about international trade, isn't it just feeding corruption? So I think if you can get sued in a U.S. court, in a U.K. court, in a Swiss court, maybe you'll take notice. I think people will think twice. If we tax people a la source, it should be possible to try them as well. I think so. And I think it's it, it adds that enforcement part that, that you mentioned that has been pretty weak mm. in the past. And all of these legal, it blows through all these legal structures. I have a subsidiary. Maybe we should have a trade splitting subsidiary. Now, this is... Yeah. Because right now, we're on the hook for everything. And we should base it in... Bermuda or Panama. Uh, Channel Islands. Panama. <laughs> Van Halen could be our theme song. Bring Insert music here. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> David Lee Roth, sponsor us. Nike's also been in the news lately. It's facing social media backlash in China this time over comments on Xinjiang. Anger with Nike erupted on Chinese social media last week after Chinese citizens spotted a statement from the sporting goods giant saying it was quote-unquote concerned about reports of forced labor in Xinjiang and that it does not use cotton from the region. The social media fallout got so bad that one of China's most popular actors terminated his contract as a representative for Nike in response to social media criticism over the company's Xinjiang statement. So it's kind of interesting why we're talking about this, because it's really now coming from the other side of the equation. So Nike and these companies are sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't. So they are getting criticized by the West, broadly speaking, for what we perceive as uh, human rights abuses. Perceive? I mean, the UN has said it's definitely human rights abuses. Right. Exactly. Thank you. For Maybe it. reaches genocide. Yeah. Yeah. But then they're on the flip side of it, a uh, market with 1.3 billion people is also fighting back on them solid. from the other. Yeah. End, right. So they are sort of stuck between a rock and a proverbial hard place. Absolutely. And there's this is, as you say, the flip side of when we start talking about trade and human rights, business and human rights, it makes people uncomfortable. In this case, China feels victimized. We saw that also with this meeting between the U.S. and China and Alaska, where the U.S. brought up these issues in Xinjiang and China said, what about all the human rights abuses in the U.S.? So it becomes a political issue and political issues spill over onto these companies. And H&M is facing the same. You are not going to be able to get your bedazzled crop top from H&M in China anymore. because. All 1.3 billion of them. It's a lot of crop tops. It's a lot of crop tops because <laughs> of the this this backlash. So it's it's this is the other side, the flip side of companies trying to insist on this uh, link between business and human rights. That's right. This uh, the social media fallout also comes as as Rob mentioned, as relations between the U.S. and China have deteriorated, most notably in, in Alaska recently. In the latest development, though, the U.S., the European Union, Britain, and Canada last week also imposed sanctions on Chinese officials for these alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang. China then retaliated with sanctions on European lawmakers and institutions. And then earlier in the week, as Rob also mentioned, at least one Chinese uh, online retailer appeared to drop H&M's products amid this social media backlash uh, on the Swedish company for saying it was, quote unquote, deeply concerned about reports of forced labor in Xinjiang. It doesn't sound like that big an issue, really. They're just saying we're concerned means nothing, almost nothing. So it's 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 a heavy price. Anyway, talking about analog, talk to me about exactly. the the. We think of trade. We talk about trade and digital and AI and all this highfalutin stuff in your term. So we get back down to to the nuts and bolts. The nuts and will. bolts. Tell me. That's right. So I think we'd be remiss not to mention what's going on in the Suez Canal, which has sort of shaken up Twitter. That's all people are talking about. It's sort of like you talk about Brexit. It's everybody's response is new phone. Who's this? <laughs> when it comes to Brexit, Brexit? No, no, Brexit Suez. What? Suez. So we're all experts on ports 
Hey, we knew <laughs> Jan Hoffman when uh, before this. We had the foresight. So if anybody's asking who Episode thought that Jan Hoffman would be a good interview guest, the answer, the tradesplaining guys. Yeah. Episode two of Tradesplaining, our very own Jan Hoffman. We will have him on the show, I think, soon. I think we need to have a special episode on this, but tell exactly. me what's happening. But anyway, so we talk a lot about the plumbing of trade and containerization and, and how prices have been going up for, for a long time and how there's been a squeeze on the supply of containers. But what happens when there's actually a bunch of containers literally blocking the pipes of trade? You call a plumber. That's what they're. That's what they're doing. Tell me. That, that's actually what happened when the Ever Given, a container ship almost as long as the Empire State Building is tall, ran aground on March 23rd after being caught in 40 knot winds and a sandstorm that caused low visibility and poor navigation. So there was 40 knot winds and a sandstorm. I think that's two of the seven plagues. Yeah, that's that. You don't want those things at the same time. No, five more, and I think it would have been sort of something biblical. <laughs> Some horsemen. Anyway, why is this important? Well, about 12% of global trade passes through that uh, 120 mile or 193 kilometer, if you're in Europe, canal, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea and provides the shortest sea link between Asia and Europe. This blockage is estimated to be holding up at least $9.6 billion worth of goods each day. For you wonks out there, that equates to $400 million an hour. Basically, we're losing one-tenth of a Bezos every day. This is exactly, this is our new unit. We're, we're quantifying things in, in, yeah. in one Bezos. It also reminds me of that, of that scene from Jaws, where Rory Schneider's character has that famous line of we're going to need a bigger boat a bigger tugboat not this time well yeah bigger tugboat i was going to say it's not very useful we will need a bigger tugboat i've also seen that they're talking about using a fleet of zeppelins <laughs> to lift a thing you're just talking a lot of yang i, I swear it's to god i swear that they considered using zeppelins to actually lift the boat like a fleet and i thought what could go wrong hashtag hindenburg <laughs> <laughs> my favorite was the instagram post that said showed the Boat sideways in the canal and said, we're going to be here a while. <laughs> like, or the, uh, <laughs> yeah, 2021 sort of said, hold my beer. When everybody was like, oh, 2020, it's great. It's over. 2021, hold my beer. Things really went sideways, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, I've even read there could be a toilet paper shortage. Yeah, this is, this is really what got me. So all jokes aside. Uh, Bicycle parts, who cares? TVs. Not care. important. No. What we care about is toilet papers, unless you have a Japanese toilet. Uh, in March 2020, we were talking about toilet paper. Now, history yeah, is, we're talking histi about toilet paper. History is repeating itself. It is. So in all seriousness, this is uh, sort of, I think, highlights a couple of points. But maybe I'll let you uh, respond a bit, Rob. What, what do you think about this? Well, I think it's, it, it does show us that analog trade, as we've been talking about since the last few weeks, supply chains are distorted. Containers are the wrong places. Prices are shooting up. This is just another contributor to that. So we're going to see, again, prices shoot up higher. We're going to see things even delayed. I mean, I can't buy a bike this year. I'm trying to give people my money for a nice bike. Can't do it uh, until June or later in the year. So it's it's. It, I think it's just that one thing more that shows us the vulnerability. We kind of thought th things are efficient, things work well, and now we see hmm, there, there are some vulnerabilities out there. Yeah, that's right. I think this is maybe maybe leads us to rethink whether efficiency at all costs is really the be-all and end-all. I think we, we, we talk a lot about lean supply chains and, and, and companies who keep very low stock, so the inventories are, are quite low because things have just gotten so efficient and you see when there is a an external shock, in this case, the weather, how that can affect and maybe it'll make us rethink a little bit whether there should be some redundancies built in or how we can build in redundancies because on the other hand, it also shows that supply chains are global. In scope. So this is blocking up not only goods like 
toilet paper, which is sort of funny, but it's not. But as you mentioned, TVs, bicycle parts, automotive parts, things like this. So I, I think it... I'm hoping once we do get out of it, once those tugboats eventually pull it out of the airlift, the boat by Zeppelin. This uh, sounds like a Bezos thing. We're going to use balloons. Actually, actually we're going to use uh, I drones. That, I heard Elon Musk said he could build a rocket. <laughs> That's exactly. So we got so we got basically seven billion people on the planet are hoping for a high tide to float this boat, and that's hey, whatever whatever floats your boat. Literally. Man. So I think the the main thing is we better get this episode out quickly because if the ship is freed and moves through the canal before we put this episode out, you're going to have to drop this segment. Well, folks, that about does it for the stuff that went wrong this week segment. Let's move on to our interview and talk a little bit more about business and human rights. Dorothy Bowman Pauli is a professor at the Geneva University School of Economics and Management. There she directs the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights, the first human rights center at a business school in Europe. Since 2013, she's also been the research director at the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU. My old job. In these roles, Dorothy works with companies to advance human rights and corporate practice. Her applied research is focused on embedding human rights in organizations and developing business models that enable profits. And she also teaches business and human rights, and she co-edited the first textbook on business and human rights, published by Rutledge in 2016. In 2016, she also co-founded a business school network to integrate human rights and business education, as well as the BHR Young Researchers Summit for Emerging Scholars. Dorothy earned her PhD in economics, summa cum laude, at the University of Zurich in 2010 while working for the Fair Labor Association, a multi-stakeholder initiative with a mission to improve labor rights and global supply chains. Also my old job. You've been busy. I I think the one that was maybe most surprising was you wrote speeches for Bobby Kennedy. I, I get around. So without further ado, as we say, let's get into it. So, Doro, great that you're here with us. Thanks a lot for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get in the field of business and human rights? And what's the journey been like? Hi, thanks for having me. Not sure how far back I should go. I got into business and human rights, I would say, even as a high school student. This was something that was of interest to me because I was an Amnesty International member as a high school student writing urgent action letters against the death penalty, etc. And as I then studied political science during a time of very fast globalization, it became clear that governments are one important player, but certainly private actors such as internationally connected civil society organizations and businesses are of growing influence in that global governance sphere. And then in my PhD thesis, I specifically explored the role of private actors, particularly multinational corporations. And in this context, I then further and further focused on business and human rights very specifically. The journey has been fantastic in that I see the world developing towards uh, an understanding that those private actors have a very important role to play to advance human rights in practice. And I keep referring to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index. And the latest one pointed out that only 8.4% of the world's population today live in a full democracy. And it's it's the democracies that best protect human rights and are built upon the rule of law and human rights. And if, if those democracies are in decline, we need other actors to step up. And I see the greatest chances and leverage of corporations to do so. So in, in practical terms, what do we mean when we say business and human rights? Is this the same thing as, say, uh, corporate social responsibility? And what does this have to do with trade? So 
There's so much language flirting around in this broader sustainability sphere from corporate social responsibility, which is probably the most popular concept used by corporations to describe what they do in relation to society broadly. There's corporate sustainability, corporate citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. From an academic point of view, I spent quite some time in my career defining those concepts. And every presentation I give typically starts with a definition. I think that the linguistic framing is important. But then at the same time, I also believe that we shouldn't waste too much energy on defining how to frame things, but really figure out very pragmatically, how do we support companies to make practical progress towards human rights? And so I don't actually care so much how you call it. You can call it CSR or business and human rights or sustainability. As long as you do the right thing, that's fantastic. And the right thing for me is to figure out how does the business model, the way how you make your money, affect human rights in your corporate sphere. And the advantage, and that's why I chose business human rights as the right linguistic framing, is that with human rights, we have a clear normative reference point. And so it allows us to have a reference point from which we can then derive clear human rights standards for corporations. Corporate social responsibility, in contrast, doesn't have this normative reference point. And in practice, as we've seen in the past years, has included everything under the sun, from sponsoring to philanthropy to things that are clearly outside of what how companies make their money. And I'm really laser sharp focused on how do companies make money and how do those core business processes impact human rights. And this is, I think, best captured with the business human rights framework. The, the other problem, I think, with CSR is that it it's a bit too close to CCR. And so I always confuse it with Creedence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> this is an opportunity to insert music. Yeah, I think Born on the Bayou was a song about sustainability, I think. I never know when it's going to come. So we also talk frequently about trade and inequality on the show, especially it's, it's become really the running theme since we started the podcast. What we would be interested to know is how does the human rights debate relate to, to this talk about inequality and, and maybe trade more broadly? That's such a great question. I think one of the most important themes or challenges of our time. So for the environmental dimension of sustainability, certainly climate change is the mega challenge. For the social dimension of sustainability, I would say it is global inequality and rising global inequality. And so clearly under this global inequality mega challenge, there's a large portion about human rights. And for business and human rights, I think we need to better explore that link between the business human rights agenda and inequality. And my colleagues at the NYU Stern Center for Business Human Rights are currently doing exactly that. They're preparing a report where we very closely look at which type of business models aggravate global inequality. And to illustrate this, for example, in global supply chains, production is outsourced to countries, uh, to developing countries that often have governments either unable or unwilling to protect basic human rights. And the outsourcing is not bad inherently. The question is just how can we make sure that the outsourcing of production supports the socioeconomic development of communities in those developing countries? What we see right now very often is that the outsourcing also means an outsourcing sourcing of responsibility. And it's a rather exploitative relationship where wages of workers are way too low to make a living, for example. And this would be a 
business model of outsourcing then that is making global inequality worse. But it doesn't have to be this way. So we're looking for business models of outsourcing that actually support workers and communities in developing countries to improve their current status of living. So my example in purchasing practices shows how business models can either make inequality worse through exploitative relationships in a transactional business model, or they can actually be beneficial for addressing the inequality challenge by supporting workers and communities to advance. And the difference shows on the ground, and we need to understand that relationship between the type of business model and the impacts on inequality. What it seems to me is you're describing a type of of arbitrage that companies are engaging in and finding the economies of the markets or countries where they get the best deal, so to speak, in terms of labor rights, similar to how companies relocate based on tax preferences. So is is this sort of the same thing that, that we're talking about? What you're suggesting is that they are supportive of what I would call a race to the bottom. Where can we get the cheapest, the fastest, the lowest level of standards? And certainly, for example, low labor cost matters in those outsourcing decisions. But more and more companies I talk to, they also explain to me that's one factor among many. And we also want decent quality. We want to make sure that we actually receive the goods that we ordered. So the reliance of receiving the delivery, all these things matter. And so it would be too easy to say they only go there because it's cheap. It's a package that those companies look at and they have an increasing understanding that social and environmental issues matter as well. So nowadays they're hesitant, for example, to produce in countries that are under allegations of genocide. I mean, a garment company right now probably wouldn't start new production in Myanmar or in Ethiopia or China, we'll see. But clearly these broader political context issues matter as well. So I think it's a great segue to the to the question. So we're talking about working with companies mm-hmm. and companies in some way have been talking about doing better and investing in different kinds of, let's say, sustainability or improved performance for a while. I've been in the business for quite a long time. Maybe I've been hearing about this for at least a decade. Many apply some kind of voluntary standards, reporting efforts, and so on. But the world seems to look the same. So people are you know, looking at with a slightly skeptical eye. Of course, a lot of bad is still happening. There's a lot of exploitation. So is there evidence companies are doing any better in reality? Look, I do think there's progress out there, but you still have to look for it with a magnifying glass. So there are individual examples and some companies I think are really getting it that it requires more to engage in business and human rights than to do business as usual and then you add things to business as usual. For example, you add social audits or inspections, you add training, you add capacity building, but you still do business as usual. So that won't solve the systemic human rights challenges that are actually driven into the supply chain by companies at the top. So if your purchasing practices are so price and delivery time focused, you won't solve the issue of overtime by sending inspectors to those production sites. You will just find the same problems over and over and over again. So we've talked so far from the company side, but there's also a big temptation and even maybe a realization, if I put it in air quotes, that regulation is also part of it. And you mentioned also government is is an element. And there's so rising conversations about requiring 
companies to have due diligence in their supply chains and to know what's going on and even to be held accountable for that. So the Swiss, for instance, recently voted narrowly against a measure requiring companies to do more due diligence in supply chains. And the EU is is bubbling up with a regulation that looks like it will happen, which will require this kind of due diligence. The French have done it in New Zealand and so on. So do you think these kinds of regulations are going to be helpful? And do you think the Swiss vote was a kind of test case or is it a sign of things to come in other places? I think the development of legal frameworks for human rights due diligence have picked up pace in the past years. And it's really impressive what happened in a fairly short amount of time to change from originally soft law requirements enshrined in the UN guiding principles for business and human rights, now becoming mandatory human rights due diligence in, in several European jurisdictions. And the the trend keeps accelerating. So what didn't work out in Switzerland may eventually come at the European level, but the vote was so narrow. It actually won the popular vote. 51% of the Swiss population supported the initiative. It only lost because the majority of the cantons voted against it, but large support. It was a historic success, I would say, in that actually the question was not or the debate over the ultimate objective, namely to make sure that companies do the due diligence in the supply chain. They it was a debate over the means. Do we need civil liability? How deep into the supply chain should the civil liability go, et cetera? So there was actually consensus over. It was a questionable means. And so it didn't work out in Switzerland this time. But as I mentioned, at the European level, the train has long left the station and is moving forward in full steam. So with France and Germany and the European level, I think eventually companies based in Switzerland, operating globally, this will be their reference point, the European level and the surrounding countries where they have big markets. So one of the interesting things in the public debate in Switzerland was about big companies versus small companies. So that many Swiss didn't vote for it because they thought this will be too onerous for small companies. In my work, I see that. So small and medium enterprises, SMEs, generate a lot of employment in the developing world. They do a lot of the innovating, et cetera, et cetera. They can also be terrible violators of human rights or, or completely flaky. And a lot of our attention still focuses on multinationals. So how do we help the small and medium enterprises who are employing most of everybody to also take on board these principles? Yes, that's a great question. But I've conducted research myself a few years ago on Swiss UN Global Compact participants, asking myself, does size matter? And I found that size indeed matters and that Actually, those small companies that signed up for the end global compact were substantially more advanced than those multinational companies that had already put resources into communication and reporting, but not so much into actually substantially changing their business practices. So in terms of the substance, I don't think you can conclude that size matters, that the large ones ought do more. It just looks like they do more because mm. they communicate better. And the small ones might actually already be substantially advanced. For those legislations, indeed, I think also size shouldn't matter. It depends on your exposure and your risk portfolio. So what are a couple of things that listeners, uh, and as you said, we're all consumers, should take away from, from this discussion? How can they contribute to better protecting human rights through their purchases, for instance? Or, or are there other ways that, that we're missing? So I think the first point is we need to acknowledge 
acknowledge that change will come from multiple sources. Some of my colleagues are very focused on these mandatory human rights due diligence, and they think that the legal frameworks will be the silver bullet to all human rights challenges. I don't think this will be the case. It's an important development, but it's just one development out of many. And I see another important development from the side of investors that ask for ESG data from companies, that's environmental, social governance data. And in that S of ESG, I see this as a great driver for companies to assess their human rights impacts. And of course, consumers, they matter as well. Consumers are more heterogeneous and the needs and interests in Western democracies are different from developing countries where consumers are less sensitive to those type of issues yet. But of course, consumers matter and consumers here, I think, can make a difference by, first of all, consuming slightly less, but then also asking the right questions. And as consumers, you can ask questions about the products you buy. My colleague just reached out to a fashion company to better understand their China policy. Why not write them an email? If companies see that consumers are interested in these aspects, it'll become easier for them to develop sustainable products. I think change will come from so many sides. There's the legislative development, there are investors asking for it, there's the academic community that are rethinking very foundational concepts right now, consumers, education and students. So taken together, I really think that this time we'll reach a tipping point that leads to real action. Yeah. So is there a question or a topic that you wish we, we had raised or, or asked but we didn't. And, and it's fine if, if you say that we asked everything because we, we love podcasts. <laughs> no, I'm sorry to say there are many. I'd love to continue. But wow, wow, I think wow. one topic that is really important is to focus on measurement. Measurement in that, you know, the famous quote of like what in companies, what doesn't get measured, it's not getting done. And I think this is also true for human rights or sustainability generally. And it's so much harder to measure performance, human rights performance than environmental performance. We can't use a thermometer or measure emissions like for the environmental sustainability part. Social sustainability is harder to measure, but it's not impossible. Just because it's harder, we shouldn't give up on it. Because if you want to see progress over time, we need to define key performance indicators. We can actually measure human rights performance of companies in different industry contexts over time. And in so doing, we empower consumer and investors to reward the best companies. And that's eventually what we want. We want to be able to compare two companies in the same industry. I'd like to know if Nike or Adidas has um, better human rights performance. And then as a consumer, I can decide if I want to reward the better company. Right now, even me as an expert, I can't tell. Both companies are very engaged in the debate, but they use different standards and different key performance indicators. So I can't know as an investor or consumer, which is the company I should reward. And that's unfortunate because I see consumers and investors as super important drivers for business human rights, but they're not they don't have the meaningful information yet to act upon. And that needs to change. And of course, I think it's important to give companies that take on a human rights agenda a sense that this is not utopian. It's possible 
some companies are already doing it and it's beneficial for your business. It creates business opportunities. It's not just a burden or a compliance issue. It's actually something that makes your business future-proof. So we're going to move on now to the Geneva-focused bit or the expat-focused part of our, our interview. If you've listened to the podcast before, sort of what to expect. And if not, I guess just go with the, go with the flow. It's going to be great. Enjoy the ride. Don't you can't sue us after this. The first we, we we'd like to ask is I mean we understand you're from you're German. Mm-hmm. So you, you grew up in Germany. What's it been like living as an expat, even though it's not so far, living as an expat here in Switzerland and and watching things from abroad here in Swiss Roman? And I think is there anything you learned about yourself or the place you grew up by looking back on it? Now that you're in Switzerland, for example. Indeed, I'm German by nationality and spent the first 20 years of my life in Germany. But then I studied international relations and political economy. And I actually moved around a lot for 12 years. I changed continents multiple times and moved almost hundreds of times, but very frequently. And so that time was really shaping me in that it was great to actually come to Switzerland, which offers a very international scene on a small in a small space it was like the entire world is represented here in geneva of course is exceptional in that respect in terms of living here as an expert i never felt like an expert here i've moved to a quartier where there are not many expats and my kids go to a local school and with that family connection i'm i'm hoping to blend in but I've just recently started working in in the Swiss context because until 18 months ago, I was still working in New York at the NYU Stern Center for Business Human Rights, and I'm still involved with them half of my time. So I'm only 50% here in Geneva, and I feel really welcome here at the University of Geneva. And it's fantastic that we have been able to launch the Geneva Center for Business Human Rights here. After all, we are the first one in Europe, so we're really taking a risk and chances with this project. So you you mentioned a couple of times the Stern School in New York, and yeah. I understand you also studied in New Jersey. So first, sorry about New Jersey. Not your fault. It's not your fault. I mean, it does happen. But more importantly, have you ever visited Staten Island? And if you have, did you see Artie's cousins there? So No, I didn't see Artie's cousins. I did visit Staten Island because as every good tourist, you take the Staten Island ferry, which is for free from Manhattan to Staten Island. But you actually never get off that ferry. You turn around directly and come back to Manhattan. In New Jersey, honestly, I had a fantastic time there because universities are really wonderful islands. I had such a good time and education there and also I love New Jersey beaches, so I, I actually like New Jersey as well. What? I've never heard anybody New say Jersey that. has beaches? They yes, they're beautiful beaches. Yeah. Can you see the beaches from the chemical plants? No. It actually lights <laughs> up the sky. Is nice it the way. other side? Okay. It gives you a really nice sunset. Also, Bruce Springsteen is from Jersey. Atlantic City. Yeah. He blew up the chicken man. Didn't sound like a good place from the song. It doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound good at all. But of course, New York has a different vibe, and I, I really love New York. So I miss it terribly now that I can't go periodically. And when when Doro says New York, she means Manhattan. There's even a song for it back in the Staten Island groove. (laughs) 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 Insert music here. It's coming. Many of my friends, as they now have families, they move to Brooklyn. So I've ventured out to Brooklyn now. But yes, indeed. Otherwise, New York is Manhattan for me. For most people. Yeah, yeah. Me too. I mean, I'm a tourist when I'm there. And I guess if you can make it there. You're a tourist east of the Mississippi anyway, so it's fine. (laughs) I've never even been to California, but this is a different episode. Everywhere I go, they say, oh, I love the U.S. Have you been to Grand Canyon? No. St. Louis Arch? No. I went on one corporate training in Denver. This is a very sore subject for me. Did they play Rocky Mountain High? No, I had a rumble. I was with PwC and I had a rumble with people from Deloitte. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Who's the big four now? It's only going to be a big three after we're done with you. Anyway, we have to get to, I think, what's really very important. And uh, you're, you're an academic, a scientist. You understand about rigor. We're rigorous yes. on the podcast. So yes. have you ever had your bike stolen in, in Geneva or Lausanne? I am riding bikes. Not so much in Lausanne. It's so steep. So I've given up riding bikes there, but I've brought my bike to Geneva and it's at the train station because I bike from the train station to university. The bike is so old and makes so much noise when I ride it that I think no one here is interested in stealing it at this point. That's a very smart strategic decision though. Yeah, good idea. Indeed. But then every time I come back, I'm worried that it's lost and it's not. So every time I'm arriving at the train station and the bike is still there, so I'm expecting that it will get stolen, but then it makes me so happy every time it's still there, although it's such an old bike. A slight disappointment maybe that it hasn't. I had a car like that. Why won't somebody steal this? <laughs> they won't steal it. Claim the insurance money. Continuing with more of the scientific part of the show, what's yeah. your favorite kebab place in oh, Geneva or, um, or globally? You have to take me because I'm I'm not eating much meat, but if you take me to a fantastic kebab place, I'll eat kebab. I haven't explored that scene in Geneva yet. The great thing about kebab place, they have falafels too. Usually. Apparently they do. The falafel you sandwiches. can even be vegan. And the falafel sandwiches at Alamir are tip top. Yeah, that Alamira. was, that was unfair. That yeah, that was an unfair Oh, was that a leading, leading question? Was that a leading question? <laughs> from, from the purveyor of leading questions? Parfum de Beirut normally would be the place. So the last question... Over to you, Artie. So we usually ask, in Switzerland, we know about the duopoly, which is co-op and Migro, yeah. but I think we're going to switch it up. This is a last minute game time decision. Aldi or Lidl? Oh, so neither, because both are so far away from where I live. So I live across the street from a co-op. So convenience, just I go to co-op. But then when I'm taking the train from Geneva, there is a Miko in the train station. So then that's my supermarket of choice. But Lidl and Aldi would require a special trip. This is so it's 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 either co-op or Migro or even Lidl if if they're close by. Yeah, simplifying. But, but what if their supply chains were were in human rights friendly? Well, that, that's the second question. Do we know anything <laughs> about their human rights performance? Probably not. I do. No, no. I I shop very consciously at Co-op and Migro where I know the products by heart. So actually, because they have such a limited product range, it's a bit easier than in that's large Berlin <laughs> supermarket. Actually, convenient from a sustainability point of view. Do you have any other spinach? No. Oh, you're going to get what you get. you get. Yeah, exactly. And you're going to like it. <laughs> Betty Bossy, it is. On that happy note, Doro, thank you for, for joining us on Trace Planning. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's been an eye-opening and informative for me, at least. I don't know about Rob, but I, I think I learned a lot. It's not a a subject we, we focus on a lot within the, the broader trade or globalization space, I think, from our perspective. But I think it's been super helpful and we're really glad that you could join us. Thank Thanks you so again. much. I enjoyed it, too. Thanks for having me. So, Artie, we've had a segment called Overheard at the UN Beach Club, which has been in mothballs. Been on ice for a while. It's been like Han Solo frozen in carbon. But I feel like there's been a, there's been a development. Tell me. That's right. We've been reliably informed by sources close to the matter, <clears throat> Ian Richards, cough, cough, that the UN Beach Club is actually opening up on April 1st. No, that's not that's a joke. That's not a joke, folks. It should be, though. What, <laughs> what does this mean for listeners, you may wonder? The answer? More UN words of the day are coming. Stay tuned. And actually, for additional content, there's a bunch of UN staff who are opening a brew pub next to the ILO in an abandoned field called the Bergerie, literally the sheep's pen. I don't know why. It's a British thing. It's like it's the, the, thing. The, the stag and bull. So they are they're crowdfunding. They're going to be using sustainable materials. They're going to use recycled this and that, blah, blah, blah. Actually, they had me at beer. 
Yeah, it's actually sustainable. You can buy three beers for 50 bucks. That's, yeah. But then you also become a participant in the upside of the brew pub. Uh, yeah, there's something good about it, too. We should buy a piece I, of that. I, we, we, should, we should actually have them sponsor this segment. This segment could be sponsored by them. We would have to pay for it. <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're going to also mine for material at this brew pub once it's up and running. I think they've got a very solid business model, much better than ours. It's called beer. <laughs> this is a really massive, massively successful <laughs> business model. Folks, this takes us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva. Or Paris or Amsterdam or any number of other places where people we interview have lived. So we're broadening. We're broadening. It's lived in, insert the city here. Li lived in someplace where we could actually get a person to come on the show. Yeah, that's exactly. the key. That's the key difference. We're not picky. So I'm happy to report uh, this week, and I've been combing the news, as you know, that Switzerland now hosts 99 mammal species. That's 12 more than in 1995. We're all very happy about that. Like Jay-Z said, I got 99 problems, but a mammal ain't one. Ma <laughs> did she, he did not say can that. You can you turn off that thing? The wolf has come back to Switzerland. There's a charismatic lynx. And of course, everybody knows the Etruscan shrew. My favorite. Is a big hit. But perhaps a darker side of the story, and more menacingly, it, there are certain species that are on our doorstep. One of them is the Balkan hedgehog. Apparently, it's recognizable by the brush haircut on the Mercedes. He used to call me a Balkan hedgehog when I first moved to Geneva. And I didn't get it. Now I get it now. Now you know. And there's also the American mink. <laughs> which, of course, is recognizable by enormous white sneakers. They're usually New Balance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a college sweatshirt. <laughs> so uh, keep an eye out should you be crossing the border. And uh, if you do see one of these mammals coming across the border, please do alert our vigilant border police. Also, in a you know, very important development, the Ooster apple has been elected the Swiss fruit of the year in 2021. Beating out a close-fought battle with the Eppenseller Kintz. I'm sure there were many other very good fruits that just couldn't make it this year. The Ulster. Where is Ulster? It's uh, Northern Ireland. No, that's Ulster. That's Ulster. Apparently, it's a little yellow apple. It's used for its sugar content back in the day. Now, sugar is a little more available. So it almost disappeared, but it's uh, it's making its way back. And uh, you don't just become the Swiss fruit of the year. You are elected. So look for the Ulster apple at a co-op or Migro near you. If it's Migro, it will be wrapped in plastic. And if it's co-op, it'll be wrapped in nicer plastic. And if it's, it's, if it's legal, it'll be from Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Doro Beaumont-Poli, for joining us and discussing business and human rights. And, of course, her visit to the Isle of Staten, New York. That's right. We should also note that the Isle of Staten is not one of those aisles where you can dodge taxes. Not like Guernsey. No. You can dodge liberals can't dodge firemen anyway don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already and make sure you subscribe to catch the next episode coming out in a very short time and also feel free to leave us a review on apple podcast you can also follow us on twitter and instagram or email us at trade.splaining at gmail.com once again that's trade.splaining at gmail.com and remember folks listen responsibly